right, good. Well, it's good to see everybody. We're glad, glad to get going here this morning. So we're continuing in our study of the uh, Paul's letter to the Colossians. And uh, to review a little bit from last week, got three or four things here. So the first thing that we talked about, and it came out of that first uh, chapter, was that Jesus is 100% human and 100% divine. And, and God is the only one that could work that math, okay? So why was it important for him to be human? Why do you have to be 100% human? Yeah, so there, he, had, he had to live the life we live under God's law. He had to be totally human. And then why did he have to be totally divine? So that he would not be born in sin, number one, so that he would live his life perfectly, right? And that his that it was God uh, becoming man. So all of that, it you know, God could, is the only one that could have worked that out. But the the fact of our forgiveness and our salvation is tied to that. And the reason why it's significant is because if you deny either one of those, you're taking the saviorship of Jesus right out of the picture. So there are a lot of people today who say, "Oh, he was this wonderful teacher. He was a great human being. He." He lived the kind of life that, you know, everybody should emulate. He was this just wonderful uh, sort of social worker that went about doing good. And there's no mention at all of the div divinity of Jesus, the divine nature. You take that out, he's not the Savior. And he doesn't rise from the dead uh, on the third day. So that's a big deal if you say that he was not, uh, was not divine. Um, but if you say he was not human... Well, then you sort of buy into this idea that he was some sort of mystical sort of being, but he didn't live our life. He didn't. Uh, he wasn't subject to God's law. He wasn't subject to the um, the kind of life that we have to live. So it had to be both, and it had to be that way. And that's that's the beauty of it is that God provided that in uh, in Jesus. Um, and then point, that's what number two says. So number three, it was God's plan from the beginning to include Gentiles in the kingdom of God. Gentile Christians are included as God's chosen people. That's highly debated today, by the way. I had somebody, let's see, what was it? It wasn't last, it was a week ago, Saturday, asked me if America should be friends with God's chosen people, given what's going on in Israel, okay? That's the, that's the perspective that he was taking, is that God's chosen people live in Israel. And so I said, yeah, America should be friends with Christians, because who are God's chosen people? People that believe in Jesus as their Savior and Lord, right? Now, in the Old Testament, it was people that believed in God's promises as it looked forward to the coming of Jesus, right? But you can't separate out chosenness from uh, a nationality and say that that nationality or that particular uh, regional group uh, is the uh, limit of who God's chosen people are. So the question really is, if you are chosen by God, the question is, for what purpose? Hmm? To serve him. To serve him. Okay. In what way? Well, I mean, we all have our gifts, so. How about trusting God and doing good? How about that? <laughs> yeah. I love that. By the way, I, I didn't admit this in the sermon because I thought, I don't really want to go there with this. But I, I didn't steal that because it came out of the Bible. Okay, how many of you know who, uh, let's see, what's her name, Beth Meyer? Is that her name? Yeah, she actually was, has been talking about that a little bit too. So um, I have to admit to you in here that uh, 
it sort of uh, uh, piqued my uh, curiosity to take a look at that and see if there's something there that would speak to us. And doggone it if it didn't. So um, you'll only hear it here. You will not hear it out there. All right. All right. Great. All right. Well, let's get into our uh, study then for today. We're in chapter 2, verses 1 to 19. He says, I want you to know how hard I am contending for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not met me personally. My goal is that they may be encouraged in heart and united in love so that they may have the full riches of complete understanding in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I tell you this so that no one may deceive you by fine-sounding arguments. For though I am absent from you in body, I am present with you in spirit and delight to see how disciplined you are and how firm your faith in Christ is. You know, if you read the, uh, the epistles of Paul, there is a little sentiment that he portrays or reveals that where he's talking about um, this kind of this opening line here. I want you to know how hard I'm contending for you. Uh, kind of, it's kind of shows up at different places, different phrases in the in the letters where he's saying that this work is hard, and I want you to know that I'm I'm doing that for you. Is he bragging? Do you get the sense that that he's bragging, Bob? I'm going to have you answer last because <laughs> he has the right answer. Yeah. I think he's, he's saying that he's committed. He is committed. Yeah, he's not being lukewarm about it. No, he's not. He's not. He walked into harm's way every single time he did this. So, But if you do that, do you have to go around telling everybody that you do it? Does that make sense when I ask it that way? And we may be very uncomfortable with even this line of, of questioning, but I'm curious about that. What do you think? Yeah. Sometimes I think you have to to encourage others. Yeah. You know, this is the, you know, hey, I'm, I'm doing this. Would you like to come help me? Yeah, and sometimes it's not known, you know. People think that being involved in ministry is easy, right? That it's a piece of cake. See, how you know that is that whenever you get recruited for a job in the church, isn't that what people tell you? Oh, it's easy and it won't take very much time. <laughs> <laughs> and we all laugh about that, right? Talk about recruitment creep, you know. I mean, there it is there, right? Yeah. There's times in the epistle where he, especially when he's talking to the Jewish audience, lists out he's like from the tribe of Benjamin, mm-hmm. you know, all mm-hmm. of his accolades. His, and yeah, and his pedigree, yeah. yeah. It's in here where he's kind of like, hey, if someone like me... Oh, that's a good point. Yeah. That's what I thought of the little bragging. Yeah, it is. I don't think it is bragging, but no. I, I just throw that out there well, to get you that thinking. He did that before, right. And that's what you were talking right. about. He was taking away all the reasons why people would be yeah. high on themselves. That's right. Because yeah. he was more Jewish than the rest. Yeah. Okay, more Jewish than the rest. Yeah, like be more Lutheran than the rest. Right? Yeah. yeah, Bob. Okay, I think he means he's struggling in praying. Yeah. He prays for all of his. He he was no question a man of action, but action was not the full complement of what he was involved in doing. He was a praying guy. Yeah. And we see that we see that again here. The other part of it that I was kind of thinking is that I wonder um 
I wonder if he struggled with himself because of what his past was. You know, when you have a past and you have a history, and the history that you have, you can't hide from anybody because everybody knows, right? They knew. I mean, he's not. it's not like he did his missionary work in North America where nobody knew him, you know. they did, the, His past would not have followed him. His past was right there. Everybody knew. And I often wonder if he didn't struggle a little bit with that himself. He knew he was forgiven by God, but you know how that is sometimes? We're forgiven by God, but gosh, it's hard forgiving ourselves, right? It's hard letting go of uh, whatever it is that we feel convicted by in terms of what we've done or have not done. So anyway, he just says, I want you to know. Now he says, my goal is that everyone who for whom I'm praying, as Bob pointed out, be encouraged in heart and united in love, that they can have the full riches of complete understanding. How important to you is that when things happen in your life, that you understand why they did? How important is that to you? Does that matter to you? Do you ever ask why? Do you want to know? Or do you just ask? Nikki, do you do you want to know? You want to, you want God to tell you why? And what are you going to do with that if he does and you don't like the answer? <laughs> that could be. It is kind of interesting that when you look at the different things that happen in a person's life, okay? Um, they can be big things, they can be little things. And what tends to happen is, is that we look at all those events that happen in our lives, and we look at it through our eyes, of course, because they're our eyes, right? And the perspective that we have is, I think, sometimes limited to the idea that we look at each individual thing, or we might look at a sequence of things and think to ourselves, uh, oh, that was good, oh, that wasn't good. Now, notice we don't ask why when the good things happen. Have you noticed that? Lord, why are you blessing me so much? Doggone it. <laughs> we don't do that. No, we don't do that. In fact, we say, hmm, come on, you know. But, but it, we, we're looking at the individual things that happen through, through, uh, through our eyes. What would happen, do you think, if we started to think in terms of looking at life through Jesus' eyes? And that we literally began to pray to ourselves, Lord, give me the eyes that you have to see what you see instead of only seeing what I see. Because what I see is pretty much limited to, did this make me happy or make me sad? Did this make me happy or make me sad? That's it, right? That's pretty much the limit of it. But when you start looking at life through Jesus's eyes, all of a sudden you get a way different perspective. You start seeing it in a whole different way. And also what happens is, is that you might start to see a linkage in some way between the dots, that the dots somehow get connected in a way that you never thought, that you thought, oh, there's no way any good could possibly come out of this situation, right? And then all of a sudden you step back and maybe way later, you have Jesus's eyes and you go, oh, now I see, now I see. That if this hap hadn't happened, well then that had no chance, right? And I just think that when you take on a perspective like that, it changes the it changes how you deal with life, even when the stuff that happens is lousy stuff. 
It's not to say that we whitewash it and say, oh, that was good when it wasn't. We're not going to do that, right? But it enables you to take a perspective that looks at it differently maybe later and see how God works. Anybody experience this? Anybody experience this? It's pretty cool when uh, when you start uh, looking at things and looking at life through Jesus' eyes. Yeah, okay. So he says that they may have the full riches of complete understanding, that they may know the mystery of God. Now, mystery, remember, is a word that would have been very appealing to the Greeks because the Greeks, this was uh, sort of pre-Gnosticism, but there was this this sort of teaching going on in the Colossian church that was very much into the idea that, oh, the mysteries of God. And if only you knew the secret codes, like the secret codes of numbers or the read between the lines or whatever the special words were, if you knew those, then you knew what the mystery was. And what, what Paul is saying is the mystery is in Jesus. And the mystery that is uh, God's word is that the Gentiles are also to be included in the kingdom. And it's not just the, cho- uh, the chosen uh, people of Israel, that Gentiles are also, we could say, are God's chosen people. So he just says, I'm telling you all this so that you don't get swayed by fine sounding arguments. Now, how many of you, let's be honest, how many of you here today enjoy arguing no one will admit that. Oh, finally, Joshua is honest. Thank you. Well, let me ask it differently so we can get to the real truth here. How many of you like to get in the last word? Oh, here we go. Okay. Right? Yes. Okay. And what, Christina, what is the, what, what is the thing about that? What, what is it about that that just you find yourself drawn to that so much? You don't know why you do it. Thank you for being honest and sort of admitting to us that it'll never change. That's right. I don't know why I do it. I just, yes, I'm, I'm just compelled to do it. Yes, good, good, good. Yeah. Well, I think it's somewhat of a prideful thing, too, because to get in that last word, it makes you think, okay, I'm right. Yeah. Yeah. I'm on the right side here. That's right. And by golly, you should know that, right? Yeah. Yeah. And so, yeah, see, none of us will admit to being argumentative, and yet we all do it, right? We all do it. And so the beauty of this here is, is he's saying, I, I'm, I'm telling you all this so that you're not deceived. See, the deception is not just simply deception that comes from out there, but there's also an element of self-deception, right? That if I get in the last word, then somehow that makes me the one who's right. Yeah, Gina. Oh, mine was brotherly love. Huh. I always had to brotherly get, love. Get in the last statement, just like you said. Yeah. I had to make sure he understood that I was right. <laughs> so it's, it, it's not enough that you're right, but that your brother understands that you're right. Yes. Yes. Should we talk to your brother about that and see what he what he would say? If he's smart, he won't say anything. That's right. Yeah. Oh, he agrees. Oh, oh, see, that's true brotherly love. What a bunch of baloney that was right there. All right, all right, well, let's keep going. So verse 6, he says, So then, just as you have, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, 
and overflowing with thanksgiving. So wherever you see that word live, there's two things you need to know about it. Okay, the Greek word there is the word walk. So it's, it's the idea live means that you're walking with and in. And that involves movement. That involves destination. That involves journey. That involves moving to South Carolina. That, moves, that, that involves all those things, right? Uh, and continue to do it. So that the other thing that we would see in the Greek is that you put the word I, the letter I-N-G on the end of it. It's not live as if I will now live. It's I am living. It's not walk as I stand still. It's walking, right? And so I continue to do this. There's a continued action there in terms of, uh, in terms of the language. So it's very, uh, it's very instructive for us. Rooted and built up. How do you get rooted in him? How do you do that? By doing what we're doing. Being in the word, being in the sacrament, being with each other, doing all those things that keep you thinking the way God thinks, that that transformative way in which the gospel moves our hearts and our minds to start to think like Jesus, to see things through Jesus's eyes, not simply see them through our own limited eyes. And then what ties it all together is that you are overflowing in what? Nope. What are you flowing? Yes, we, yes, love. Okay. But what does it say here? Overflowing with Thankfulness, yes, thankfulness. So what's built into thankfulness is both a humility as well as a gratitude. So the humility is is that everything that I am and everything that I have comes from God, not from me. We have to kind of be reminded of that, right? And that then also with it is a gratitude and a humility. So it's all about whatever comes from him. Okay, next page. So verse 8, see to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends upon human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than on Christ. You think that's going on today, by the way? Oh my gosh, yes, right? Now, you know, it is kind of fun to study the philosophies and the religious perspectives of other people. Is there any danger in that, do you think? Studying it, getting to know it. Is there any danger? What would be the upside of doing that? Yeah, it gives you perspective because there's a lot of people in the world that have bought into that and that's their way of seeing things. Plus, if somehow I was going to be involved in engaging with them in terms of the gospel, right? Somehow I need to know a little bit more about the way that that thinking works, okay? Now, the downside of it, obviously, is that, or seems obvious, that you could become so enamored with it that you start to forego your own faith because you start to adapt to or adopt to the, the other kind of faith. I think that when you think about the kind of um, indoctrination that goes on now in many circles, um, higher education is one of them where if you go into that and you say, well, we have this open mind, and sometimes what happens with open mind is no mind. So you go in with this no mind, right, uh, of, of, of a faith basis or a, a way to uh, uh, view all of those things through the lens of Jesus. If you don't have that or if that's not a strength for you, then you're going to be very susceptible to buying into a lot of 
what the worldly sort of philosophies have to offer. And that's, you see, that, that's what was going on in, uh, in Colossae, okay? So it, it's important to have that. So, so where would you get that? If you wanted to um, inoculate, that's probably not a, a great word, but let's use it. Um, if you wanted to spiritually inoculate somebody who was uh, part of your uh, fellowship, and they were going to go off somewhere else and they were going to learn about all these different things and be exposed to it in an amazing way, okay, powerful ways. What would you do to strengthen the inoculation? What would you do? Fred, what would you do? Oh, Fred. I know, that's a hard one, isn't it? That's a hard one. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that, because when you have the foundation right, then the foundation itself might take some hits, but the foundation is still secure. If the foundation is cracked or the foundation doesn't exist because it's the house built on sand, right, then when all these other philosophies come along, they're going to sound pretty uh, pretty interesting. Um, how many of you, and I, I'm asking this question because I don't really know, how many of you have been exposed to the discipline of apologetics? Have you had, Darren, did you have some of that? Where did you get that? Um, there was there were some classes at our own church, but I kind of just put up on it <coughs> over the years. So are you pretty good at it? Um, I wouldn't say that, but I, I'm kind of aware of the, some of the organization. That's good. I'm going to have you come up here and teach us sometime. That'd be really good. What, so what is apologetics? Because here, here's why I'm asking this, is apologetics is probably one of the things that we've missed when it comes to the defense of our faith, uh, not the teaching of our faith, but actually the defense of our faith in the face of all the threats that are all around it, all around in the world today, uh, philosophies that are, um, are counter to our faith, but um, sound great. You know, they sound like, oh, I really want to do that. But they're not. They're, it's, a, it's a deceptive kind of thing. So what apologetics does, the teaching of it literally, is it teaches you to defend your faith. Obviously, you have to know it, but you also have to know how to defend it, right? And I think we've missed the boat on that. Um, a long time ago, when my dad was in seminary, they taught that. When I went through seminary, they didn't teach that. And I've talked to Pastor Coleman uh, occasionally about it, like, should we like offer it? And, and, and his answer is, we're, we're teaching it. Well, we're teaching the foundation of the faith, but I don't know if we are teaching the defense of the faith. Does that make sense in terms of that? Yeah. Yeah. So that would be a good thing. Now, I know that Paige is, uh, this must be like the Learman day or something that we're on. <laughs> But she's very, like, she's, was she getting her doctorate in it or something well, like that? Well, she got philosophy with an emphasis in college. Yeah. yeah. Why don't we have her come up here and start yeah, talking to us? Yeah, she's going, they're having at New Orleans Baptist Theological Seminary. Yeah. They're having, uh, they, every year they have Defend. What mm -hmm. they call Defend. Defend? And it's part of her stuff. Yeah. It's oh, it is. conference. And mm -hmm. they've got Gary Habermas. They've got... Uh, all these apologists in the room, room. Lydia in the room. Yeah. They have books out on apologetics mm -hmm. and stuff. Uh, Lydia in the room defends the Gospel of John because there are a lot of scholars that basically say that it's it's not really true. Yeah. Jesus didn't literally 
surely say some right. of the stuff that John has right. and stuff, but yeah, apologetics yeah. is... It's a, it's a key thing, and it probably... Maybe there was a time when we thought we didn't need it as much because we're a Christian nation, whatever that means. But now it's like um, we uh, sort of got caught with our pants down. You know, we just didn't... We, we weren't paying attention. So maybe we could have... Do you know do you know anybody that knows Paige who could maybe influence her to, to maybe come back and spend... Uh, yeah, spend a day... <laughs> You know, we can rustle up 15, 20 bucks for her. You know, the, we could probably do that, too. But I think that would be another instructive thing to do because um, it might be a good idea to be able to jumpstart something like that. I'm thinking particularly of our college kids that go off to school. Um, it's a little harder in college sometimes because you feel a little bit intimidated by the professors or by the peer group. Um, that somehow you can't speak up and that in some programs if you speak up um, they will say to you that you uh, you're not a good candidate candidate for that program they'll kick you out so you, you do have to have a little bit of a, a sort of stealth kind of um, finesse when it comes to uh, to doing that um, yes Armin well I, I, I was the person who People said, when you get a Mormon or Jehovah's Witness knocking on your door, don't let them in. I let them in. We sat down, and I learned about it. And what I did with my, our kids is, I, of course, we, we taught the Bible. We, we, we try to practice, and I failed miserably in different areas. But one of the things I tried to do is bridge the gap. There's a gap. We teach this, and then they come along, and they've got all these answers for everything we teach. Yeah. And so I said... They're going to tell you this, this, and this, and here's why that's wrong. Mm -hmm. So I tried to prepare my kids for the confrontation that they might encounter right. the best I could. Yeah, yeah. Maybe that's maybe that same approach is what's needed, expanding it beyond a particular religion like Mormons. Yeah, great, awesome. Yeah, Keith. And the, uh, I know I've had some conversations with your with your uh, other associate pastor. With my other associate pastor, let's see. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Jay Warner Wallace has some excellent books on He's a cold case detective in the Los Angeles Police Department. Since he's retired, he approaches all the things as a cold case and he brings down wild. Oh, that's good, too. Yeah, that's good. Iowa, this past uh, a week ago, not this week, but the week ago, um, I got to uh, go to a uh, event in uh, in Fort Worth um, to hear Eric Metaxas. Have you you know that name? Wow, that was amazing. He did an interview of an uh, he's into archaeology, and so he did this interview of an archaeologist by the name of Stephen Collins. And Stephen Collins is well is a renowned uh, archaeologist who's doing a lot of work over in the Middle East. And he's the one that is credited with finding the original site of Sodom and Gomorrah. And what's interesting about it was what he was interviewing him at like live interview. And so we're hearing this whole story about how that happened and that what what played into it in terms of the uh, the fact that they had found what they thought was the place. And it turned out not to be that, that the reason why it was uh uh, discredited for so long that this is where it was is because the guy that was in charge of sort of setting the 
the uh, schedule, I guess, or the agenda of archaeologists throughout the world, um, uh, was uh, an unbeliever in the Bible. And Stephen Collins is a believer in the Bible. And so he read Genesis and he followed the, the path and the, uh, uh, the, the uh, map, if you will, just reading Genesis. And he said that, that uh, Sodom, they found, was at the north of the, of the Dead Sea instead of at the south of the Dead Sea. Yeah, I, the, so the book is called, I, I went ahead and ordered it myself, it's called um, Discovering the City of Sodom. That's the name of the book. And I would recommend that you get that. Uh, it's by Stephen Collins, not by uh, Eric Metaxas. But Eric is a strong defender of um, not just what's going on in America and that kind of thing, but also um, what's going on biblically in terms of those who are adamantly opposed to anything having to do with the Bible. And it's even then creeping into the study of archaeology. So this finding Sodom is a fascinating story. It's really, it's really well done. It's really, really great. Okay, well, let's keep on going then. Um, so verse 9, For in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form, and in Christ you have been brought to fullness. He is the head over every power and authority. In him you were also circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands. Your whole self, ruled by the flesh, was put off when you were circumcised by Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through your faith in the working of God, who raised him, that's Jesus, also from the dead. This is going directly after that Gnostic belief that uh, uh, coming out of Plato, that anything having to do with the body was evil, anything having to do with matter was evil, only things that had to do with the spirit and the mind were good. And so when Paul says, for in Christ all the fullness of God lives in bodily form, he's going right after that, that teaching that said that God and Jesus only existed in spiritual form and that there's, there's no value at all in the idea that he was in bodily form. Now, what's interesting about that is, is that there are wisps of that belief and that teaching that have made their way into the Christian church today with respect to Holy Communion. There are people that believe that when you take Holy Communion, and there's lots of beliefs, one belief is, is that you're only getting a symbol of or a token of Christ's body and blood, but his body and blood really aren't there. It's just the bread, and they would say not wine, they would say bread and grape juice, that it's just a token of. It's a remembrance meal, and we go to communion. We don't have to go very often because what, how many times do you have to go to remember what Jesus did for you? Okay, so that's, that's very much a, re, a reform position. But there's also the idea that people believe that when you partake of Holy Communion, that you're not getting the body and blood, but rather you're getting some spiritual sort of, of, uh, of uh, presence of Jesus, but it's not the real thing. Uh, Luther was very adamant about that as he drew out of his, his Catholic upbringing um, to say that when you take communion, what are you getting? The bread and the wine and what? the body and the blood. It's not, it is a spiritual moment. Well, obviously we had communion today, it's very spiritual, okay? But what you're getting in that moment is the bodily presence 
the, the, we, we, so we call it the real presence, the real presence of Jesus' body and blood in, with, and under the bread and the wine. So again, it's, it's so interesting to see how even some of these ancient heresies kind of thread their way through the, through the centuries and end up uh, even in what people believe and teach today. So he says that in Christ you have all of God is right there in bodily form, and that through faith in Jesus, you what? You've been brought to that. So we have access to that. We have the benefits of that. But then he says Jesus is the head over every power and authority. What power and what authority? I'll just sip on my coffee while you contemplate that. What power? Yes, absolutely. But, and you could also maybe even argue in some sense the worldly powers and the worldly authorities that we think oftentimes are way in control of all of our lives. You ever felt that? You ever thought to yourself, man, what in the world even do I have any choice over these days, right? What in the world is there? And you think every, everything now, wherever it's going, the government's in charge or the social media's in charge or the computer is in charge or whoever's in charge. And guess what? Jesus is the head over every single bit of that. Now, it is mystifying to us why he doesn't show up more and say, excuse me, right? Why he doesn't do that? I don't know. I, maybe we'll find out on Judgment Day why, right? We don't know why. But the reality is, is that because we know that, we ought not give in to despair. We can be a little annoyed by it, but we need not despair because at the end of the day, whose plan is in charge? Jesus is this. Might we need to remind ourselves of that? Yeah, I think so. I think probably we are so inundated with uh, information. I was going to say news, but it's not really news, but stuff, right? That we fill ourselves with all of that and we forget to remind ourselves at the end of the day, God's in charge. He's got the plan. He knows what he's doing. And what's built into that plan is that he loves you. And nothing is going to change that. Even people in South Carolina are loved by Jesus. <laughs> Can you tell that I'm going to miss you? Can you tell that? Who else am I going to get to say that to? You know, golly, on it. So then he says, you know, you were circumcised. So that was, that was part of the deal in terms of their faith and the tradition of their faith, right? But he's also saying that when you were baptized, you went through a circumcision, not a physical circumcision, but actually a circumcision of your whole self, that your whole way of thinking, your whole way of living, your whole way of seeing life moved from your eyes to Jesus's eyes. That that was the whole point of that that when we were baptized, we were connected to Jesus in that intimate way of his baptism. And so what happens in baptism? Um, not, I don't think we see it so much in the way that we Lutherans do baptism, because basically we would do it in a either sprinkle form or we do it in up at the font, you know, and the font is not six feet deep. I wish it was. I, I just wish that it was a dunk tank, you know? That would be so much more clear in terms of this idea of what Paul talks about in terms of drowning the old man, like boosh, like that. There is on YouTube, I think it's on YouTube. Have you seen this? It is a, uh, it's a video of a, of a Greek Orthodox priest 
who is baptizing an infant, and he is going, boosh, right underneath. And the kids come up going, <laughs> like that. And the father, boom, and, and he, he pushes him down in the water, and the kid doesn't drown. It's just so, but see how great that would be in the front of our church. Oh, no, there's a skeptic back there. It wouldn't be, this would not be great. I wanted to do that to my child. Oh, okay. Well, but see, if you have the option, you have the option, you can dip your finger in the water and go like that, and that's the same, right? You can do what Pastor Coleman does and does this. I prefer this, like that, with that sound effect, too, by the way. Because it, the deal is, what's happening is the old, the old man, the old nature is being drowned. And then what happens is coming up out of the water is this new, this new creature, right? This new man. And so it would just be fun sometime to do that, but don't worry, I won't suggest it. <laughs> but that's the idea, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, when I was in Missouri. <gasps> Yes, when I was in Missouri, there was this guy that was disabled who lived across the street from us, and he found out that I was a preacher, and so he said, preacher, can you come and talk to me about Jesus? Like, I'm fresh out of the seminary, and I don't know anything, right? (laughs) But I went over, I went across, we we did Meals on Wheels, so that's kind of how we got to know him, and uh, can you tell me about Jesus? And I told him about Jesus, and he said, well, I'd like to be baptized. And I said, well, how about if we talk a little bit more about other stuff in the church? So uh, because he couldn't read, what I did was um, I put together a six-lesson um, instruction using cartoons. I did it all with, you know, cartoony kinds of stuff, stick figures. And, see, that's why I like to do it up here. And so then he said, I really want to be baptized. So there was a member of the church that had a fishing lake spring fed and this was in southern missouri so it's out in the ozarks and i said you know hey can we come to your thing and we'll do the thing and i thought that the guy would want to just like stand on the edge of the water and then i'll reach down in the water and put the water on him oh no 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 we're going out and so we went out about you know 50 yards or so on a sandbar an elder of the church and myself and it's going like this, because it was in the spring, so I don't know what the temperature of the water was. It was really cold, and so uh, I didn't do a sermon or anything. I just said, in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Something. But anyway, what we did was we did the dunking. It was dunked, right? And you know I, how I knew how to do it was that I had seen, um, I'd seen how the Baptists do it, and so I watched. I had watched. They didn't have video in those days, but I had watched them. They hold it like this, and they do it like that. Boosh, right in there. So anyway, that was the one um, dunking that I did, and it was memorable. And I still, but the guy's in heaven, right? Because that's what baptism does, right? It assures the person of faith and confirms that. So thank you for reminding me of that, uh, that story. Yeah, I know it. All right, well, let's keep going. So verse 13, he says, When you were dead in your sins and the in in the in uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, 
he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Now, there's a lot of oxymoron sort of stuff going on in this verse. So he starts out by saying, when you were dead in sin, one of the three spiritual problems that all human beings are born with is that we are born spiritually dead. That means you have no impulse to be drawn to God. You're dead. Now, again, that that puts us from our Lutheran perspective a little bit at odds with some of the other uh, teachers in Christendom who would say that um, that's not necessarily what it means. Okay, This is why we baptize infants, because we believe that he's talking here about all people who are born into the world, not just people when they reach a certain age, like age of accountability. Okay? So this is one of the, one of the uh, things that we look at. And, and so, again, if, you're, if you have no impulse for God in terms of your, the fact that you're spiritually dead, how can you make yourself alive? Can dead people make themselves alive? No. And so spiritually dead people cannot make themselves spiritually alive. What has to happen is God has to do something. And that's what he's saying here, is that God made you alive with Christ. See, that's why it's so critical that Jesus uh, arose from the dead on Easter. If Jesus stays in the grave, there is no being made alive, right? And there's no being made alive for us, right? So it all ties together in terms of what God did for Jesus in terms of what he does for us. He canceled the charge of this legal indebtedness. I don't fully understand that one. Bob, did you do some research on that? Do you have some sense of that? This idea of a legal indebtedness created by sin. Do you have some sense of that? Our sins are imputed to Christ. Say that again. I say our sins are imputed to Christ and His righteousness is imputed to us. That part I, I know. But the, this, this phrase of legal indebtedness. And justification is a legal... A legal term. There you go. So it brings in this idea of the judge pounding that. You are declared righteous even though you're still a sinner. Yeah, boy, isn't that an oxymoron right there, right? And so isn't it ironic that the very thing that you would normally associate with punishment and death and defeat ends up being the very instrument of life and forgiveness and victory and that's what he says having disarmed the powers and authorities he made a public spectacle of them when was the public spectacle made over satan and his uh, dominion on the cross but then in between the cross and the resurrection what happened we confess this all the time in the creed we say what he descended into hell What's interesting about that is that when we get to that part in the creed, there is a slight change of tone in the congregation, almost as if we are a little bit reluctant to say that. Like, you know, uh, he died and buried, and then we go, he descended into hell. It's like, it's like we're, we're apologetic about it. Okay, so here's what we need to understand about the descending into hell. Why did he go there? Was it to suffer more? No, because the suffering took place on the cross. So why did he go there? 
to thumb his nose at. This is exactly when he went to hell doing this. Nani, nani, nani. I am the winner, right? And maybe not that crass, of course. But that's the point, right? And then he rises from the grave. So the descent into hell is what's called a part of the state of exaltation as opposed to the part of the state of humiliation. Yes, Joshua. Uh, I didn't quite hear you. I'm going to have to move toward Yeah. 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 I've heard that too, that he went there to preach to the spirits in prison. In fact, that's what Peter talks about. But, but the idea is that he was preaching to the demons there that he had what he he had the victory over over the cross their their uh, victory over uh sin death and the devil the perspective though that he went down to preach and share the gospel opens the door for the possibility that even though you're in hell there's a second chance okay and that's a little bit that's a little bit harder to defend that uh, biblically, but yeah, that's that is that there is a teaching about that. I think the idea of purgatory and some of that stuff comes out of there as well. Yeah. Uh, the idea that he went to hell to the purgatory. I've had it said that we don't know that he was in hell for three days. We don't know that he was in hell for three days. Well, no, we don't. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And I was in shock the first time I heard it. I mean, that's the only time I heard it. Yeah. But, and I'm pushing respectful. I don't understand that. When it says that he descended into hell, yeah. the third year rose, came from the dead, descended into heaven. But when I said, you know, when we're trying to decide, what was he doing in hell? What was he doing there? Yeah. I mean, yeah. You said, we don't know that he deserved three days. I Publicly, I'm not going to disagree with my senior well, that is what I that is what I say about that. I mean, he went there. The Bible doesn't say to us how long he was there. And plus, for him at that point, time disappears. There's not, you know, time and space. That's for this life. But that now he's beyond this life. So, so we would just say on the third day he rose. But we don't know. Like, was he like? Did he like sit around and kind of wait? And you know, I mean, I don't know. I don't know. But yeah, yeah. See, that would still be true for us in this life. But once we go to the new life, a day is a day, or a night is a night, or a minute is a minute, and we don't even know that it is. See, that's why the great thing about heaven is that that you'll be able to stand in the Y line. Are you familiar with this? You know all this all this stuff we want to know in this life as to why something happened? Well you can go stand in the Y line when you get to heaven. And the beauty of it is because it's eternity, you won't care how long you're alive. Oh, this is great. I think this is something to look forward to. So just save all your why questions for when you get to heaven. Because nobody knows the answer anyway. Okay, well we're gonna stop here. And then we'll pick it up next week with verse 16 as we follow then into the next chapter. Would that be okay if we do that? Okay, very good. All right.
Well, let's uh, close with prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for our time together. Thank you for the way that your word continues to speak to us and remind us of the significance and the importance of maintaining a strong foundation in your word. There are so many things going on in our world around us today that are seeking to undermine the foundation, are seeking to destroy the foundation. They're, they're seeking to, to create a new foundation that has, has nothing to do with your word and the way that your word speaks to us. Your word is you, Lord. And you take away the word, we're taking away you. So help us, Lord, to, to work as hard as we can to, to keep that foundation strong in our lives. And then as we kind of think about ways that we can defend the faith, perhaps there's some of us here this morning who would be um, uh, moved to investigate more of that, to think in terms of, of how do we do that? And is there a way to impart uh, the, the understanding of that or the wisdom of that to others and maybe in a teaching point? So Lord, be with us this week, watch over us, and keep us close to you and to each other as we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.